everybody. It's really lovely to see you tonight. Um, we're going to be talking about a lot of subjects. We're mostly going to be um, thinking about um, the, panopticon effect, the panopticon effect and the understanding and impact that has on the way that we work with women, particularly who are experiencing domestic violence and coercive control. So I'm just putting that out there at the start now. So if that's a subject that's difficult for you, um, be aware that you can step aside or you can come back and, and look later on and um, whatever feels best for you. Um, but obviously, we'd really love for you to join in and be able to sort of share your ideas and thoughts and ask questions. So before I get started and introduce our fantastic guest, let me hand you over to Dave, who will show you how you can join in on social media. Hi, uh, hi everyone. Thanks, Nikki. So as always, there's two options to join in as we're live. Uh, the first one is on the Facebook Live feed. So all you need to do is wander to the side of the video and there's a place there where you can type in any comments, questions, thoughts. Uh, the other option that you've got is heading over to Twitter whilst you're watching. And as long as you include the hashtag MHTV, we'll be able to see what you're saying about tonight's episode. Without further ado, straight back to you, Nikki. Okay, and please, I'm very pleased indeed to be able to introduce you to Tyrion. So Tyrion, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hello, um, and thank you very much, Nikki, for inviting me today. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. So yeah, so I'm uh, Tyrion Harvard. I'm an Associate Professor in the Social Work Department at London South Bank University. And Tell us a little bit about the kind of subject that we're going to be talking about today, particularly around coercive control. How did you get interested in, and involved in working in this? It's such an interesting, but such a difficult sphere. What, what led you to it? So I think, um, so I'm going back a few years now, and I think it probably all started, uh, I got my social work qualification, became a qualified and registered social worker, um, and went to work in the probation service. Um, and sort of developed a real fascination, you know, you have to go on this, you know, standard induction training and the domestic violence one was the one that really caught my eye and, and caught my interest. And um, I soon learned that when you learn to ask the right questions, actually there's quite a lot of perpetrators of domestic abuse that come through probation doors. And so um, I guess I just sort of, I mean, I wouldn't say I specialised in it, but I mean, I, almost all of my caseloads were perpetrators of domestic abuse, whether that was their index offence or not. And I did that for, and I was, you know, worked in the probation service for many years um, and sort of always tried to keep up with sort of thinking around domestic abuse. And then I had my babe, my, my son, um, and decided I wanted to step back from the front line, really. Um, and got a job at London South Bank University. Um, and with academia, there's there's kind of an expectation that you do a PhD. And so it, it sort of made sense really to do it about domestic abuse because that had been an interest of mine for so many years. And round about the time when I was really having to make a decision, yes or no, there was um, there was the uprising in Egypt. And I don't, I don't know if you remember it, but one of the things that happened was that the president cut off, cut, shut down all the mobile phone tele, um, networks yeah. so that they couldn't communicate and, that they, and, and it was a way to manage the riot, rioting. Yeah. And, um, and I kind of put two and two together and thought, oh, domestic abuse, yeah. mobile phones, there must be something. There must be something there and sort of use that really as um, a t the topic for my PhD. 
mm. and sort of since then have just been more and more fascinated because it's such a because of it's because it's technology it moves really quickly mm. and so there's always something to learn and there's always you know there's always something to find out so I, I just find it really fascinating um Take you back a little bit, if you don't mind. No, um, no, no. Why did you want to? Because, I mean, being a social worker isn't always an obvious choice. And well, then on top of that, going into probation is even less an obvious choice. So what what was the, you know, the things that actually drew you in that direction? Because that, that's unusual, isn't it? It's not everyone's cup of tea. Yeah, well, I think I always wanted to be a probation, um, a social worker, if I'm honest. And I remember when I was sort of a teenager speaking to my mum's friend who was a social worker she was like oh no you're too young don't do it it's a terrible job you know and it's just like you're far too young to mm. decide now and really you know wait until you're you know 45 before you decide I mean she was really trying to put me on mm. and so I did and I went sort of you know I did a degree in physiology which is nothing to do with anything that I'm doing now mm. um and sort of but but just and then and then sort of graduated as a physiologist knowing that whatever it is I wanted to do in life it wasn't physiology or anything lab based mm. um and then sort of decided on got a job in a bookshop just just so I could pay my bills yeah. got really bored really quick uh and worked for this charity volunteered for this charity called prisons families and friends mm. and it was through that that I learned about the role probation officer mm. um, and everybody there wanted to be a probation officer and at the time in order to be a probation officer you had to be a social worker mm. and sort of it, it kind of, I don't know it's, it's just like it's, it feels mm. a bit like the path fell in front of me and I just mm. kind of followed it mm. if mm. that makes sense yeah it does absolutely absolutely and it's an interesting one isn't it because you get a lot of reflected stigma for that population heavily stigmatized and I think as well sometimes the people who work with them and for them also experience that on a sort of secondary basis so I was just yeah. curious there for a little bit yeah so so my partner at the time was a social worker and I'd go around telling everybody he'd do anything to avoid telling people he was a social worker and I described <laughs> myself as a social worker because it was much better than being known as a probation officer <laughs> much safer you know yeah, so, yeah. yeah. So, I mean yeah there's you know yeah and you, you know you work with it I get that yeah 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 absolutely it works. so then when you came to do sort of like come back again to look at sort of academic working and do your PhD you've described how you came to sort of light on this subject of you know technology and coercive control and domestic abuse um so how then did you move forward how did you go about deciding this is this is the research you want to do how you were going to collect your data um, and then we'll talk a little bit about your findings, if that's all right. Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I think it, so. I decided um, that I can't. I said I I I realized pretty quickly that I really wanted to do the mobile phone, and so I was looking specifically at mobile phones rather than technology per se, and smartphones and how they how would they because they had to they just had to there was just no way they weren't going to change it but yeah. at the time there was literally nothing written about it so I kind of had a bit of a blank page which can be scary but also very helpful I think when you're doing a PhD because it doesn't matter what road you go down it's going to be the first time anybody's done it so there's original ideas right behind so I got took a lot of comfort for that and it just and I think and I and because through my work in in South Bank University tutoring students I was going out to a lot of placements and many of those placements were women's refuges 
And so I kind of inadvertently built up relationships with managers of refugees and key workers in refugees. And so, um, and so that that was that has already existed. But what's what's really important to me and has always been really important to me actually is giving people a voice. So so typically for me it would be women and girls but anybody who doesn't really get a voice that needs to speak that that, that my I felt that my PhD invited that opportunity to give these, these women who are so seldom heard a voice and and so there's quite a lot of bureaucracy involved and a fair bit of persuading here there and everywhere but actually I got I got into the refugees so it was Hestia yeah. who uh, let me in and I got into the refuges and then started interviewing the women. And then I think because of my practice experience, I was able to, be, you know, so one of the things I remember being asked was like, well, you know, how, how do you know that, you know, a perpetrator isn't put isn't putting her up to this? And I'd be like, because I think I'll know from the language that's used. Mm. And that, that really resonated with the person who had the ultimate decision. And so I think because I worked with perpetrators and I, I kind of got their mindset and understood their tactics. Mm. I think that enabled me to build a trusting relationship with the women pretty quickly. Mm. Um, yeah, and, I, and, and also I think having sat both sides of the fence, if you like, in a professional capacity, I think, I, think, um, I think that adds to my research for sure. Because yeah. I can, I can sort of see see things from both angles, and especially when it comes to risk assessment. Mm. And this is why it's so important that practitioners undertake research. Mm. So, yeah. so important, or at least you have practitioners involved in the planning and the organisation and data collection, because you know the language and even the kind of gut instinct, all that stuff that you need to have in order to get really good data and actually to ask the right questions in the first place. Mm. I think you've got and how to ask them actually. Yeah. Definitely. And that's really important in research, but it's also really important in social work and probation. Yeah. And I think as well, um, practitioners of all kinds produce a slightly different type of research that has a different feel to it. Hmm. There's always a, um, a real consideration for the for the interviewees, for the people providing data that you don't always see in, in research that's pure psychology based. Um, yeah. Which is... A, <laughs> So, so I think that troubles me sometimes, but I think it's really interesting to have that, the kind of the, the research head, the creativity and the practice all coming together. And also your own uh, moral and ethics that yeah, really underpin yeah. and, and inform mm -hmm. what you do. So if anyone out there is thinking, you know, about doing that kind of further study and thinks, oh, I'm a practitioner, don't, don't look at it as, a, as a, an absolute benefit and an asset. Don't think of it as something that's going to hold you back. No, because and it's, it's much more impactful, I think. You know, if you've worked, if you've worked with people, then the research that you're going to do is likely to impact them and in, in them on them in some real way. Yeah. And so from where I am in my career now, my research has to be impactful. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's fine by me because I don't do research so that I can call myself a doctor. I do research so that I can make a difference to people's lives. So, so both of those things sit very comfortably. Yeah, it takes us on very much to the the, um, the findings that you had. So when you did this really new piece of work, no one else had done it. You were right that something bad was going to happen. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about what you found. So I guess I guess I think one of the, the first, I, there were quite a lot of things I found. So the, the first thing I found was that perpetrators, um, the, so perpetrators employ tactics and have done, you know, for uh, since the beginning of time, have have um 
develop these tactics mm. uh, that they use. And there's a, a very well-established, very well-respected model called the Power and Control Wheel, uh, which was based on research done in the late 1980s. Uh, and so there's like there's eight tactics that, that that this model suggests are used by perpetrators. And what what became really apparent within about three or four interviews was that actually all the examples they give of how their phones were being used fitted into this model. And so one of my conclusions for my PhD was actually the tactics are the same. It's just that it's it's not just, but it's that technology is being absorbed into these tactics and that the tactics are being upgraded if you like because because of this technology and so you know the the, the reasons behind it the, the the purpose of it the reason they do the things that they do that hasn't really changed it's just yeah. they use different different things so so that was the that was the first thing and so um the motivation hasn't changed in that so so that was the first thing. And then the second thing was, was to look at, so this, the other thing I, I realized was that um, because we always carry our mobile phones with us, because you know, you never have your mobile phone. I mean, I speak for myself, but I'm sure I'm not the only one who leaves home without a mobile phone. And then <laughs> yes, and mine too, right? But you know, if I leave the house and I've got my mobile phone, I'd rather be late than be on time and not have my mobile phone, right? Mm -hmm. so, um, so we've all got it all the time. And so what this affords is, is a 24 seven surveillance. So there's no getting away from it. So, um, so once upon a time, you know, perpetrators of domestic abuse would lock their partners up in a coal shed, literally mm -hmm. in a, I'm, I'm Welsh, okay. So, um, but would literally lock them, lock their partners up in the coal shed while they went to work. Mm -hmm. And then when they came back from work, would unlock the coal shed and then they'd have to go and sort of do all the housework and, and, and whatever the perpetrator demanded. But actually with your mobile phone, you don't need to be locked up. There's no need for that because you've got your mobile phone the whole time. Mm -hmm. And so you're contactable all the time. And to, to the extent that, and, and the thing is that if you're not contactable, then that in itself is a reason, a, a reason for, being abused yeah if i can't if the perpetrator can't contact their partner mm. then what is that partner hiding mm. Mm. It, that's the mentality of the perpetrator mm. and so and so what i found although this wasn't part of my research but women for example wouldn't go in the tube yeah because they'd lose the signal and that would result in a you know in a particularly fierce beating when they got home mm. and so women would take five or six buses to go from A to B rather than a 20 minute journey on a tube mm. because, and that would be a way of managing their risk mm -hmm. and so this this connection to and like not picking up wasn't what was a dangerous thing mm. you know or missing a call was a dangerous thing and so what happens is is that you've got um you're on tender hooks the whole time. You're just walking. You're waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting. You're waiting the, the entire time, and that's 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 anxiety provoking. Okay, yeah. and that's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And then you know you go to bed and you think this is my safe place, and then the text will ring or the phone the text will go, yeah. or the phone will ring. Yeah. So there's never any break from it, mm. and, and that I think is the first time that's ever really happened. Mm. Yeah. Very much so. So 
one of the things you're, you're finding in Ben is this piece of technology has really it's not changed the the type of abuse it's changed the way abuse yes. happens yes. so now people have a way of pinpointing somebody so mm -hmm. presumably we have things like gps and tracking and stuff like that that we need to think about um also it's it's absolutely physically changing people's behavior yeah so things like meaning i mean you can only imagine the anxiety because i mean everyone who's worked with gps knows that it's not that accurate the idea of it placing you somewhere where you're not or yeah. mis misidentifying where you are that would be really scary i assume as well yeah and, and that happened to one of the women that i interviewed mm -hmm. Susie, that's not her real name mm -hmm. and um and so she 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 she'd been a landlady she had a really successful career until she met her abusive partner mm. and um she'd been a landlady mm -hmm. and part of the conditions that she would impose on her was that she was never allowed to go into a pub mm -hmm. okay um and so she'd go for a walk sometimes not very often but she'd go for a walk and then say she'd walk down the street mm. i mean you know there's a pub in many streets in london <laughs> but the gps tracker might put her in the building not outside Mm. And so then that would be a trigger then or a, a reason for the abuse. And then in the end, she just stopped going out, literally stopped mm. going out. Mm. Um, yeah. because, because she couldn't manage, she couldn't manage what the tracker was doing, you know, she mm. had no control over that. Mm. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you look at the kind of sort of strength and determination of people to try to keep going, even though their circle is getting smaller mm. and smaller yes. and smaller and their feeling of what they can can do is getting smaller, but people still struggle on. It's 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 frightening, but it's also kind of inspiring as well. And that people will, will keep trying to sort of be free and to, to exercise their freedom mm. as much as they can. So the other thing I assume would be an issue as well, not just the constant sort of being watched and called and um, the fear of missing a call. Sometimes you don't have signal coverage and things like that, but also presumably people can listen as well. On your yeah, yeah, that didn't come out so much. So one, one of the things that came out, so one of the women that um, he had her Facebook page mm -hmm. on his phone. And so he'd be notified of any communication before she would. And then he would often pretend to be her. And if it was a text from a man, it didn't matter if the man was a brother or a cousin or a nephew, then he he would respond. Yeah. He'd be really rude. Yeah. So that they wouldn't respond again. But but she would find this out later on mm. because mm. The, the things would go to his phone, not hers. Mm. I mean, it's really scary, isn't it? And you think, oh, how does this happen? But we've just been watching, well, I don't watch it, I have to say I'm too old for Love Island. But if you look at what's playing out now on Love Island, this idea of being accused of stuff you haven't done, um, of being um, really emotionally controlled and gaslighted is, is so mm -hmm. common, you know, sometimes, sometimes people don't even seem to understand that they're doing it. It's really, you know, how this behavior escalates is something I think people can struggle to understand. Yeah, and I think I think there's a big difference, I think, between mm. sort of coercive control, mm. because for me, that's deliberate. Mm. 
Okay, yeah. it's a deliberate, and uh, so for me, it has to be deliberate. It has to be credible, and 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 the perpetrator has to be afraid of the consequences, and the, sorry, the victim survivor has to be afraid yeah. of the consequences. So yeah. those three things, I think, is what is what in my view mm. constitutes coercive control. Mm. Because if it's not deliberate, like if you've got mental health issue, if you're withdrawing mm. from drugs, if you've got dementia. Then I think that's not a deliberate course of control in the way that I've been re researching it. And then, and then we have that very fine line when people might know on social media with the Love Island things, and they, you know, they must know that what they're saying isn't very nice. Oh yeah, for sure. You yeah. know, but then I guess it's like, is is the intention to cause fear? Mm. I think the intention, to me, seemed to be to make the person not do it again. So for me, that's absolute control, isn't it? To make it diff so difficult and unpleasant for them that they don't do that behavior that you find un objectionable again. So for me, that is control, isn't it? If you create- Yeah, I mean, it's, like, yeah, it's bullying, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and there's lots of gray, gray bits mm. to it, you know what I mean? And yeah, but, but it's very pervasive in our society. That's what absolutely. I find really strange. Absolutely, and, and you know, and you can see, you know, so I do some work with girls and young women in gangs and, mm. you know, social media is used very, very often to recruit them. And there's that mm. whole um, sort of lover boy thing where they build mm. these trust, you know, and then it, and it's really subtle and really slow. But, but these are kids, you know, and they trust people and, yeah. you know, before they know it, they've divulged so much about their lives without even realizing it, you know? Mm -hmm. So there's this manipulation, this social media allows manipulation yeah. without that even having to identify themselves. Mm. Yeah, it's a real um, access point, isn't it? That, mm. And I think one of the reasons it's so important to have these kinds of conversations is for when professionals are um, having risk, risk interviews with people, when they are reviewing cases, when people are talking about distress, it's really important that that staff particularly understand what's possible and what isn't with technology because you know we have had situations where people have misunderstood the risk to someone because they haven't understood what this behavior is or even what the possibilities are for it so it's i think it's really important for for people to have these kind of open discussions i think we've got uh, uh, some questions coming in dave can i um come over to you yeah, absolutely. We've had a question in from Roy, uh, and it actually fits in with something that I wanted to raise. Uh, Roy's question is, does that also include wrist-worn devices? So obviously, we're talking about mobile phones before, but I think Apple uh, have done quite a lot of work about their AirTag devices uh, that have kind of been used by, you know, people that are stalking. So, so I don't know if you can sort of give any comments about that, Tyrion. Um, I can't comment specifically about smart watches, but the smart technology for sure. Um, so we see, so yeah, it would be right. I mean, if you if, if you can be tracked, and if yeah, if you can be tracked, and you can be texted, and you can be called, and you can be you know controlled through through a watch, which of course you can nowadays, then yeah, that that's definitely um, a vehicle to use for coercive control. And you know, and we see things like um, smart meters, and you know the, these hub things. Is that what they're called? The heating places and the smart fridges, and all you know, and all of these are. are often um you know and you can control the lighting you can turn the music on and off all of these are so sort of we've gone sort of beyond the mobile phone now and we've gone into sort of the smart homes 
okay and that would include smart watches absolutely and but I, I think largely at the moment anyway mobile phones is how they're all controlled you know and so yeah and so, so there's been there's, there's been a, a few cases of people who um you know and i don't there's a film called gaslight which has got ingrid bergman and it's from the 1930s i don't i know you like your films nikki but i mean it's, it's an amazing film mm. if you haven't watched it you should watch it it hasn't aged at all i watched it a few months ago it hasn't mm. aged at all um but so what, what this is sort of that film's almost been upgraded with technology. Mm. And so what you do is, is what's very common is perpetrators when they're not in the house will turn the heat up and then and then the, the woman survivor would be boiling hot and then turn the heat down and then the woman survivor is freezing cold. And then when the perpetrator comes back, it's like, no, 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 that was all in your head. Mm. And there's that gaslighting or turns the fridge off mm. or the all or the food goes mm. off and then either they did a re they did a really bad shop or why have you waited so and the gaslighting thing would be well why why have you waited so long before cooking it you you, you bought that two weeks ago when in fact it was probably three days ago mm. so you know it, it creates this stage for abuse so I, I don't think there's any technology to be honest that mm. isn't used mm. And the idea of switching music on in the middle of the night as well. I've come yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, and, that's, and that's part of the sleep deprivation as well. Mm. And makes neighbours furious and then distances you again. Yeah. So, and there's loads of stuff around isolation, you know, and that, that's the massive part about all, all forms of domestic abuse is this isolation. So you haven't got anybody to talk to and there's nobody there to tell you that's not normal mm. or that's not a healthy relationship, mm. you know. Um, and yeah, and certainly... Uh, one of the women I interviewed, he used to he used to bombard her with. She'd go out hardly ever, but she'd go out with her friends, and then he'd bombard her with texts, like 30, 40 texts in an hour. I mean, as quick as you can write it, that's when he was sending it. Then he'd follow that up with phone calls. Then he'd follow that up with video calls, and he'd want to see videos of the people that she was with, and she was where she said she was, and who she said she was with, and then. What, a few times she turned the phone off because she just couldn't cope with it anymore. It was just too mad. Yeah. And so he started phoning her friends. So the people she was with, he was bombarding them with texts, bombarding and, and just went through them. And of course, you know, she didn't want to go out anymore because it was embarrassing for her. But you could also see that they might want not want to invite her. Yeah. You know, and so and so she's isolated. So, so Terry, in, in terms of this, and obviously, you know, the, the domestic abuse charities will be doing lots to support uh, women, but is the kind of, you know, really good guidance out there in terms of how you identify these kind of controlling behaviours early on, and people can kind of use it as a bit of a trigger warning to think, no, actually, you know, this isn't normal, this is something that I do need to be sort of anxious about, and I need to think about whether this is a relationship that I need to kind of curtail. So there's uh, Refuge have done some research into technology um, and and how that's used. There's a briefing paper in um, the Houses House of House of Commons Library, uh, and then of course there's my paper. It's freaking out. But I think I think it's about yeah it's about. Well, if you, I, I mean, if you, if you are struggling to see your friends on your own, 
and you want to see them, but you don't feel able to, that is probably a very good indicator that things aren't quite as they should be. And that this isn't, a, you know, this isn't an expression. If you want to go out and you don't feel able to, then that is not an expression of love. That is an expression of control. And if that is happening, then start to look at other things. Yeah, definitely. As a, as a very basic rule. But, but isolation is, to not be isolated when you're experiencing abuse is, to my knowledge, unprecedented. Mm. And, 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 I, and I, also, sorry, I also include, you can see your friends, but only if he's with you. And I'm using these genders, just as I'm using these genders, she's the victim, he's the perpetrator, because that's my research. It's, I mean, you know, it could be same-sex relationship and happen the other way around, okay? So it's just like, if your partner, whatever their gender, isn't willing for you to go and see your friends on your own, when you want to, yeah. I, would, I would take that as a trigger. Yeah, definitely. Um, Refuge have actually got a tech team, which is really useful to know. We've re just retweeted out and they've got some stats saying 26% of 26% uh, of women whose partner or ex-partner knows their password don't know how to secure their devices. And they've got a digital breakup tool that's been created with a vast that helps people to understand any potential vulnerabilities. And just in the same way you might change your lock on your door, how you would be able to change your devices and how you'd be able to maintain your safety. And also another sort of top tip is... Um, with your Wi-Fi, so if you're having people back to your house and stuff, don't use the Wi-Fi that's been allocated and don't keep your stickers with the password mm. some other people can see, so change it mm. and then use a password and don't share that with anybody in your house unless you know them. Mm. And then, you know, yeah, so that's another thing. So if, if, you know, if you're having a one-night stand or something, just make sure... Mm that there's no way that person can get access to your Wi-Fi. Yeah, and it's weird because I don't think we've ever had to really think about those sorts of things before, but it's, it's really key. Yeah. Um, I've got a question from, um, I think it's a student, saying, um, this, <laughs> this all sounds awful. So I'm sorry about that, guys. Um, how, do you, how does it happen that, that somebody hands their phone over to somebody? Well... Sometimes it's, it's something that a lot of people ask questions like this and how because when we're talking about these really sort of intense examples it feels like it's hard for people to understand how you go from liking someone to being terrified of them okay so I think my first question would be does your partner use your mobile phone mm. have you ever has your partner ever said oh god I can't find my phone Mm. or yours or maybe you've got more data than your partner mm. and actually if you're in love with this person and you trust them and you think you're going to be them with them forever why wouldn't you so the question is isn't really I don't think why would you the question is why wouldn't you mm. because you've got this trusting loving relationship but also of course you know um, many of the women I, I interviewed uh, were assaulted to have access to their mobile phone. Yeah. One, of the, one of the women would, would have her hand twisted behind her back mm. and then you take her thumb mm. 
and use her thumbprint to open the phone. She she didn't give consent. Mm -hmm. That's how it was done. But usually what happens was very typical of domestic abuse is that you build up this loving relationship. And again, we see that with, with girls and young women in gangs. There's this like, I love you, I want to be with you. And, and, and this form of abuse is really specific. Yeah. And which is why domestic abuse is different. One of the reasons why domestic abuse is so different from stranger violence mm -hmm. is because you've got this trust. And then all this trust, your vulnerabilities, all your dreams, everything that you share with your partner, because that's what you do when you're in a relationship. Okay, that's what we all do in our relationships. Okay, but there comes a point where that information is used against you. Mm. So your insecurities mm -hmm. is used as, as evidence. Okay, the threats that are made against you, the name calling is about all your insecurities, the threats that are made against you are in relation to what you're most worried about. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it's really interesting to when you kind of describe some of the, the changes that are happening and have happened. Uh, and just that bit about, you know, if, if it used to be that you could access your phone by a, a, a code, then maybe that's easier to sort of protect, where now you can do it by your thumb. Well, if you're asleep, could someone sort of use your thumb to access the phone? You know, could they sort of waft it in front of your face to access it, you know, from, from using your, your, your face to open it? And that bit about there's so many bits of information on our phones that are accessed with those things so you know I think about how many banking apps I've got on my phone that are accessed by those uh you know yeah. those ways of accessing it and actually some you know someone that I you know lived with could completely take over my life really really quickly yeah. whereas maybe you know a few years ago that would have been a little bit harder uh, you know a little bit more complicated if say you had to go into the branch with someone you know of, of a bank then then it's kind of a bit different but when you really can't start to think about how life has been made more convenient for us you know you actually it's quite scary isn't it, about how it's yeah. also been made much more convenient for people that would want to abuse us yeah, absolutely. And sort of, and also, so, you know, because, because this technological abuse can be covert or overt. Okay. Mm. And so one of the things, one of the things that, you know, if you suspect that you're in an abusive relationship, or you're worried about someone who might be in an abusive relationship, or if you're working with someone, then do, do check the phone to make sure that there aren't any apps downloaded that you didn't download. Because it may be that when you weren't looking, an app was downloaded that is checking your phone and feeding back information. So if there's an app there that you don't know anything about, that and uh, and there's all the other stuff going on as well, then that that might be that might have that might be a perpetrator um, yeah. trying to control you. You know. We've been talking about the kind of physical risks. Um, and the sort of physical changes and, and the way that behavior can be altered by um, this constant watching and fear. And, and one of the things that I think would be really interesting for us to just get our heads around as well, is this idea about the panopticon effect, about what, what it is, what it means and why it's important that um, people working in health, social care and education understand what it means. Yeah, no, so this, for me, this is crucial, okay. So the panopticon is uh, a term that was devised by Jeremy Bentham back in the, I think, 17th century, but I stand corrected. Anyway, it was a long time ago, and um, 18th century, I think it was. And, uh, and basically, most of, if not all of the Victorian prisons in England and presumably Wales 
were built according to this concept, right? So Brixton Prison is an example, Pentonville Prison is an example. And what Bentham said was, he, so he built this prison with an panoptican effect. And the idea was that, that the, the prison, in the middle of a prison, there's a guard tower and there's a guard inside this tower. And then the, gu the guard in the tower can see every single prisoner and back in those days, there was one prisoner to a cell, okay? And so the, the guard in the guard tower can see every single prisoner because he, he's got um, a round view of everybody, but the prisoner can't see anybody else and can only see the guard tower, mm. okay? And so, so that was the design of the prisons. And then the theory that came out of it was that because the, the prisoners could only see the tower and not the guards, they were never sure when they were being watched. And so they started, and so they behaved as if they were always being watched, okay? And the idea was that eventually they wouldn't need any locks or bars or violence to manage these people because they would manage themselves. So they would self-regulation is, is, mm. is how uh, Foucault went on to describe it. And he goes into a lot of detail about the self-regulation. Okay, and so that was the idea of, of the Panopticon. And so as part of my research, I, I proposed that actually what happens with mobile phones is because we've got them with us 24 seven, that the mobile phone serves as the tower. Mm. The guard, the perpetrator serves as the guard. So you've always got your phone, you can see the guard, but you never know when the perpetrator is going to contact you. Mm. okay but because we've got a phone with us all the time there, there's no there's no walls in this prison because mm. you can go shopping you can go clubbing you can go wherever you want to go because that perpetrator can potentially contact you at any point mm. and so what happens even though you 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 he's not with you you're mm. not going to go places or see people mm. just in case he's watching and what came out in my research was that actually it was completely impossible sometimes for the perpetrator to know where they were, mm. Mm. right? But they still believed that they could. So they left their phone at home. They still thought the perpetrator would find them. Yeah, yeah. These, these sorts of things. And so what happens is, 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 is with the women that I interviewed, what happened was that they started, they, they didn't go places they knew the perpetrator which wouldn't approve of. Mm. Whether, whether they were there or not. And so their behavior really changes and they keep looking over their shoulder, right? So, so what the mobile phone does in my view is it gives this sense of omnipotence and omnipresence. So the perpetrator is everywhere, but nowhere, everywhere, but can't be seen. So you're always going to behave as if he's going to find you, you always behave as if he's just around the corner. Yeah. And so imagine if, you're, imagine if you're on holidays in Australia, right? And you go into a club and somebody's takes a photo of you and your mate and sticks it on social media. And then 10 minutes later, you, you get a text from your abusive partner saying, I don't like you in that blue dress, take it off. You have no idea if the perpetrator is in the club with you mm. or if he's seen the post on social media. But what you probably do is go home. Mm. Yeah. And so there's this panoptic effect that causes this self-surveillance. Mm. And so the women I spoke to would talk about how they were paranoid. Yeah. Okay. And how, you know, you must think I'm mad. And for me, I think that's very normal behavior, a very, very normal reaction to abnormal behavior. Mm. 
but actually I can also see how these women might present to, to GP surgeries, to hospitals, to police, to courts, to whoever, to social workers, and they might look like they've got mental health problems. Mm, definitely. There's a lot of different things going on there, aren't there? We probably just need to quickly unpack some of them. So the idea is that because reformers back in the day wanted people to have like a moral sense themselves, mm -hmm. it was this idea that, you know, if, if, if God is watching you, you'll, you'll behave. And, and I can understand where this, where, where this idea started, but like many ideas, it starts in one place and ends up in a completely different place. Yeah. So this idea that people will um, morally behave because they're perpetually worried about being seen, doing something wrong. It's, a, it's an idea that starts in one place, but like all power, it depends how it's being used, doesn't it? Yeah. And so if you've got a situation where with a phone where somebody is able to see where you are, see what you're doing, see who you're with, see who you're talking to, all of a sudden you've got a fear that's not about walls, isn't it? Because you were saying, you know, they've been locked in a coal shed back at the start, you know, that's how people were controlled physically. And in the prison, they're controlled physically by being locked in a cell. But this is a prison which is so... For me, I find it really frightening because you import the walls into your own head. Yeah. So even when you're walking around, you're still afraid. Even when you think you can go somewhere, you're actually not going there. You yeah. know, all those those route changes that we see and all those people sitting on five buses, that's such an intense form of control, isn't it? Yes. And so um, powerful. And yeah. I can imagine, you know, if, if a professional doesn't understand what they're seeing, I can understand people being described as paranoid, and people be seen as unreliable mm. witnesses to their own bodies and their own experiences. Um, you know, particularly if you're then saying things like, you know, the music comes on and off at night, and I can hear a voice and then I can't hear it anymore. Or, you know, I get these hot flushes, they come up and down. You can imagine, can't you? Yeah. Every yeah. single stereotype about uh, people being unreliable yeah. can shoot, shoot into a professional's mind and, and not, not for any like dark yeah. purposes, just because it, it's such an odd presentation. Mm. And another dynamic that fits into that is that a survivor's fear mm. is based on what might happen. Yeah. Okay. And so in, in refuges, it's very common to, when somebody joins a refuge, a very common sort of initial assessment is what's the, when's the first time the abuse happened? When's the last time the abuse happened? And when's the worst time the abuse happened? Mm. And so what you've got to think of is whatever the worst thing is. So if the worst thing was non-fatal strangulation mm. that survivor knows that 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 that's a go-to mm. so what would they be afraid of now yeah the next thing up being so what, yeah so what's the next thing up yeah and so what feeds into all of this gaslighting and this self-surveillance is this constant fear mm. of what's he going to do next mm. And the whole thing about, I mean, there are enormous, you know, there are many, many murders and homicides with um, domestic abuse, but actually the whole point of the control is not to kill them. Mm. So you never, for example, send a perpetrator of domestic abuse on an anger management program. Yeah. Because you're essentially teaching them tactics. Mm. It happens all the time, though, doesn't it? It does, it does, but really that, that, that's... Mm. That's poor, you know. That's that's not good practice. Mm. And if anybody else has done it, don't do it anymore. <laughs> I think what's really interesting about this is is how much, you know, that people are sort of dimly aware they should know more about this, but for some reason, considering it's so prevalent, people are very bad at seeing it. 
So Stack talks about how it's invisible in plain sight and that you have to have the wider context to mm. completely understand it. Mm. And there was, um, and he's got this fabulous example in his book, which if anybody's interested, I definitely recommend it. Mm. Um, but it's, um, so what he said, there was this woman in, in America and she was in a baseball team and um, she, she'd go every week, she'd go every week, she wouldn't miss a week, she'd hardly ever miss a week and she'd go and then at the end of it, her husband would always offer to go to the pub and he'd always buy the rounds and they'd always be charming and sometimes when it was cold, he'd even bring her a hoodie and give her a hoodie and he was just this lovely, gorgeous, amazing boyfriend and of course he was always going there because he wanted to keep tabs on her, he was always going to the pub with her because he didn't want her going to the pub on her own and giving her the hoodie was symbolic of you've crossed a line and I'm going to beat you later on and you're going to need this to cover your bruises. Frightening, isn't it? Really frightening. Mm. And But if, if, if you look outside, if you think, well, she never comes on her own. Mm. Mm. He's, he, always, she, he always says when it's time to go home. Yeah. Then these, you have to kind of piece them together. Yeah. You know, and, that's, and that's not always easy. Mm. I think you have to have your, your eyes open, don't you? And I think it's very easy to shut them because it is disturbing to think about. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's I mean, one of the watchers said it's really horrible, you know. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting thing. So if anybody is watching this and, and is sort of um, experiencing or recognising patterns, um, we are tweeting out resources we're tweeting out things that if you want to just learn more about this would be really helpful so some of the, the the ideas the concepts so thinking about the wheel thinking about uh panoptical all those things that might help you to have more confidence in your practice we're, we're tweeting that out as we go under the hashtag mhtv so do have a look at that and if you're not sure um find a professional or find a colleague or find someone to talk to about this so that you are um, in a place where you're learning because i think sometimes when you don't know something it feels almost too stressful to find out more about it or too stressful to ask but if you want to have confidence in this area and if you want to be able to support people it's really important that you've got your head around uh, these sorts of issues and the things that you're likely to to come up against and what i would say is that if, if you work in health and social care there's no way you haven't come across domestic abuse there's just no yeah. way it's too prevalent yeah absolutely so we're going to have to finish up soon because we've whizzed, whizzed by again, as ever. So I guess we'll just come to everybody for um, like anything, any of the last thoughts they've got, any resources they want to share, any any um, last ideas. So Dave, I'll come to you first and then we'll come to Tyrion. Yeah, so uh, I suppose it's the thing that we'd always say on an episode like tonight, isn't it, Nikki, that, you know, if people are watching or uh, experiencing domestic abuse themselves, mm -hmm. then absolutely don't think that you're alone. Uh, and I'll tweet out the uh, contact details for refuge for the 24-hour National Domestic Abuse Helpline because uh, there are people that are available 24-7 that want to help. So don't feel that you're on your own in terms of that. Uh, but, you know, it's been fascinating listening to Tyrion tonight, uh, especially, you know, my sort of experience and history as a health visitor working in a women's refuge uh, at times that, you know, it's always sort of really important to sort of you know, learn what perpetrators are doing next. Uh, so you can actually kind of, you know, speak to, uh, you know, for me, it was speak to mums and encourage them to sort of look for those signals that they should be concerned about. Uh, so it's, it's been, you know, really informative tonight. So thanks for that, Tyrion. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. And just to say if there is anybody, I, I mean, I, 
I really hope I haven't upset anybody. It's a really difficult subject and there's, there's no way to get around that really. But, you know, if, if, if you're feeling overwhelmed and you want to do something and you don't know what to do, then if all else, you know, if there's nothing, whatever you do, just be kind, just be kind, be kind, be kind. And if you're surviving, if you're surviving abuse or going through an abusive relationship now, people will believe you. We will believe you. Okay. And if somebody tells you that they're being abused, believe them and be kind. And that takes you a long way in life, I think. I don't think we've run a, a better way of finishing up our 99th episode than that. Tim, we've been absolutely delighted to have you with us. Um, before we go, um, obviously we're having our summer break now. So um, we want you to, to run and be free. Enjoy enjoy these days. Um, don't forget as well, if you if you are having like missing us, there is a, a load of a load of back episodes that you can watch and relive those moments. But um, we're going to be back on the 15th of September um, with an episode on heavy metal therapy. So we're going to be again tackling new ground. So thank you so much for spending time with us today. I hope you found this as interesting and helpful as I have. Um, and we wish you all the best and we'll see you after the summer. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.